Hello, welcome to the Quest podcast series. This is Alan Mulhern. In recent episodes, I explored the metaphysics and theology of good and evil. I now wish to descend from these lofty but abstract heights to the contemporary world. However, we shall never be far from the topic of good and evil. This episode is the start of a new miniseries which explores one of the ten horsemen of the apocalypse, as I have termed them. Its title is The Global Ecological Disaster, which refers to a wide range of crises that stretch from climate pollution and loss of biodiversity to the latest possibilities of exploitation of space, further oil and gas extraction from the Arctic, and also deep mining of the ocean bed. Prior to the 1960s, it was possible to say that humanity was largely unconscious of the impact of business civilization upon nature. There were a few remarkable exceptions, such as Aldo Leopold, an American forester, ecologist and writer, who in 1949 wrote, A thing is right when it tends to preserve the integrity, stability and beauty of the biotic community. It is wrong when it tends otherwise. As I said, we're never far from the concepts of good and evil. He was quite clear that the underlying philosophy of mankind in believing that it was the master of all life was very dangerous. He, like some others, encouraged a complete paradigm change in our philosophy, our economics and politics. But while it was possible then for the vast majority to claim ignorance of our destructive impact on nature, since then we have become all too painfully aware of these impacts and their consequences for ourselves, all life forms and even for the planet. Perhaps it is fair to say that prior to the 1960s or thereabouts, we destroyed our natural world without real knowledge of what we were doing. However, this has now changed. We have a lot more knowledge about the impacts of economic and political systems upon nature. Since the 1960s, there have been a series of predictions of doom that, like the temperature of the planet, have grown in intensity. For example, Rachel Carson's 1962 book, Silent Spring, in which she pointed to the enormous impact of pesticides on life, for example, on birds. Other writers at that time mentioned the climate crisis in passing, but centred on overpopulation, famine and nuclear warfare. For instance, Robert Heilbrunner, in his series of books in the 1970s, 80s and early 90s, on the human prospect. Others made predictions that were widely inaccurate at the time. For example, those of Dr Ehrlich of Stanford University, who predicted large-scale famine in the 1970s caused by overpopulation. Some scenarios contradicted each other. For example, one set of scientists might predict an ice age, while others the opposite. Clearly, climate science was only just beginning. The prospect of famine faded because of new wheat strains, and nuclear war reached a stalemate with the realisation by the superpowers of mutually assured destruction, MAD, never a better acronym. But climate concerns continue to grow. This opening episode on the great ecological disaster will focus on the most well-known of our apocalyptical suspects. 
the rise in greenhouse gas emissions and the impact on global warming. The science of climate change was still quite young in the 1980s. There were isolated individuals making forecasts of doom in the 90s and early 2000s. Al Gore, American vice president from 1993 to 2001, predicted at the COP15 conference in 2008 that there would be an ice-free Arctic by 2013, caused by global warming. OK, not quite right. But who would counter a similar prediction now for 2030? Perhaps many predictions then were premature rather than inaccurate. In The Revenge of Gaia, published early 2007, James Lovelock predicted that by 2020, extreme weather would be the norm, causing global devastation. That by 2040, much of Europe will be Saharan and parts of London will be underwater. He also said, Before this century is over, billions of us will die and the few breeding pairs of people that survive will be in the Arctic where the climate remains tolerable. By 2012, he confessed he had miscalculated because although carbon emissions were rising, Earth's temperature had hardly risen since the year 2000. He also said that Al Gore was alarmist, as indeed he said he himself was. This was a blow to the green and climate movement who venerated Lovelock as a prophet. However, it turned out that he was not wrong at all in the medium to long term. Global average surface temperatures have risen since the 1980s, as we know. They also did rise somewhat from the year 2000 to 2012, the years Lovelock was referring to, but by not as much as he had expected. However, from that very year, 2012, in which Lovelock made this surprising about turn, the trend changed and average global temperatures rocketed to record levels right up to the present. The 10 warmest years in the historical record have all occurred since 2010, and 2022 was the sixth hottest on record. Temperatures in June 2023 are also at record levels. Far from apologising, Lovelock could have doubled down and predicted an even hotter decade ahead. Climate science is not easy, and climate prediction is even harder, even for genius. However, over the last decade, the small stream of climate scientists predicting terrible danger has turned into a flood. The rise in Earth's temperatures since 2012 has been alarming, to say the least. Extreme weather conditions have emerged with hurricanes, cyclones, abnormal patterns of rainfall and drought, wildfires in profusion across many continents, sea levels rising, the ice caps melting. Carbon emissions, one of the chief greenhouse gases, are relentlessly in the ascent. Other even more dangerous emissions, such as methane, have also been rising steeply since the 1980s. Strangely enough, methane emissions flatlined from 1996 to 2007, but then resumed their steep rise. But the evidence is undeniable. The theory is sound, and medium to long-term predictions are appearing increasingly prescient. If they err at all, it is often an underestimate, 
since tipping points are being reached with runaway effects. It is no longer individual scientists or small research institutes that are reporting on these trends. There is now a worldwide network of organisations, institutions, universities, research institutes and government departments with extensive and sophisticated monitoring equipment across the globe, skies and space which are monitoring this evolving catastrophe. For example, just with reference to the United Nations departments, the World Meteorological Organization, WMO, supports climate policy making with authoritative advice and information on climatic change, climatic mitigation, adaptation and societal impacts. The WMO draws from the best available scientific expertise from the National Hydrological and Meteorological Services and from the wider WMO community. The world's foremost authority on our subject matter is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, whose job is to advance scientific knowledge about climate change caused by human activities. Other United Nations departments include the UNFCCC Secretariat, which is the United Nations Climate Change Department, the Green Climate Fund, UNEP, United Nations Environment Programme, UNDRR, United Nations Office for Disaster Risk Reduction. I could go on, and there are many hundreds of institutes and organisations outside the UN who are also devoted to the matter of climate change. So let us just take the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Body of the United Nations. It has a secretariat in Geneva, Switzerland, hosted by the WMO. It comprises 195 member states and many government departments and organisations. It has three working groups and a task force which carry out enormous scientific work. It informs governments about the state of knowledge of climate change by an intensive examination of the scientific literature, including impact analysis and risk assessment across a wide range of natural, economic and social variables. It is also concerned with the study of possible responses to these impacts. Thousands of scientists and experts review the IPCC publications and assemble their findings into assessment reports for policymakers and the general public. These are available free on the internet, of course. Experts have described this work as the biggest peer-reviewed process in the scientific community. The IPCC is an internationally accepted authority on climate change. Leading climate scientists and all member governments endorse its findings. Media, governments, civil service organisations and businesses cite its reports. The IPCC reports play a key role in the annual climate negotiations held by the United Nations. While individuals may wish to ignore the current state of knowledge on these matters, for understandable reasons, it is not excusable that some governments do so, or that heads of state and the like deny it. Those with vested interests in coal, oil and the like cannot be trusted. Neither are those who are paid by them. Nevertheless, globally, there has been a huge institutional failure to really grasp the urgency of what is happening and act upon it. 
Neither are the populations of the world's democracies willing to vote for parties that really prioritise this. Drifting into the mother of all storms is turning into a nightmare. In a few short decades there has been a sea change in knowledge. Now the great majority of the world's climate scientists agree that climate change is deadly serious, anthropogenic, that is caused by humans, highly dangerous and potentially disastrous, with increasing typhoons and drought, inundation of coastal cities, new pests and diseases, wildly varying weather, negative impact on crops and compromised food security, mass extinction of species and mass human migrations, to mention only some of the impacts. Every year, a climate change conference is held. These are called COPs, the most well-known being 2015 in Paris, in which there was widespread agreement among participatory nations to attempt to hold the rise in Earth's average temperatures to a maximum of 2 degrees, but preferably 1.5 degrees centigrade, above the pre-industrial average. A detailed schedule was constructed for all to reduce their carbon emissions so as to achieve net zero carbon emissions by 2050. Net zero refers to the balance between the amount of greenhouse gases that are produced and the amount that are removed from the atmosphere. It was regarded as a landmark agreement and great hope has been put in it. If the 1.5 degrees centigrade threshold is breached, then a number of tipping points will be triggered and even more severe ones come into being if the 2 degrees centigrade threshold is passed. That is the increase in the Earth's average temperatures. However, by 2023, it is quite obvious that we are going to blast through the 1.5 threshold very soon and nothing is going to stop it going higher. By early 2023, scientists had calculated that the world was already at least 1.1 degrees centigrade above pre-industrial levels. Carbon dioxide emissions, currently in July 2023, at the time of this podcast, are at 421 parts per million and have continued their year-by-year increase. Here are some of the consequences of what, after all, is only an increase in temperature of just over one degree centigrade above the pre-industrial levels. Heating oceans and atmosphere, melting ice caps and disappearance of Arctic summer ice, rises in sea levels around the world and changes to convection currents in the North Atlantic, disruption to the monsoon seasons, increased wildfires and hurricanes, explosions of billions of people to more extreme weather, increased flooding resulting in the loss of ecosystems and reduced agricultural production. Temperatures rising above the optimal increase of 1.5 degrees centigrade could also result in profound health effects. The global average temperature on the week before this podcast was released in mid-July 2023 had new record highs day after day. On Monday 3rd of July, the new record was 17.01 degrees centigrade. That is the average temperature right across the globe surpassed the next day, Tuesday the 4th of July, at 17.18, which was surpassed two days later on Thursday, July the 6th, 
when it was 17.2 degrees centigrade, one record high after another. This meant that temperatures in Spain were reaching 45 degrees centigrade, temperatures likewise in North Africa, Central Africa were reaching almost 50, temperatures in India reaching almost 50, and temperatures in China around the 40s degrees centigrade. All the talk and all the committees and all the solemn agreements have not succeeded in even slowing the increase in carbon dioxide emissions. They slowed slightly during the pandemic, but that was force majeure. The same applies to methane, an even more deadly greenhouse gas emission. The IPCC acknowledges this and says that the only answer is to accelerate the programme for the reductions of emissions. Its latest report says, in 2023, human-induced global warming of 1.1 degrees centigrade has spurred changes to the Earth's climate that are unprecedented in recent human history. Already with this temperature rise, changes to the climate system that are unparalleled over centuries to millennia are now occurring in every region of the world, from rising sea levels to more extreme weather events to rapidly disappearing sea ice. It continues, additional warming will increase the magnitude of these changes. Every 0.5 degree centigrade of global temperature rise will cause clearly discernible increases in the frequency and severity of heat extremes, heavy rainfall events and regional droughts. Rising global temperatures also heighten the probability of reaching dangerous tipping points in the climate system that once crossed can trigger self-amplifying feedbacks that further increase global warming, such as thawing permafrost or massive forest dieback. Setting such reinforcing feedbacks in motion can also lead to other substantial, abrupt and irreversible changes to the climate system. Should warming reach between 2 and 3 degrees centigrade, for example, the West Antarctic and Greenland ice sheets could melt almost completely and irreversibly over many thousands of years, causing sea levels to rise by several metres. So how at least theoretically can greenhouse gas emissions be reduced? James Lovelock, to everyone's surprise, recommended that the only effective alternative was nuclear energy. However, the majority opinion is that while this may be part of the picture, there has to be a massive switch away from fossil fuels such as oil, gas and coal towards electricity generated by renewable sources such as solar and wind and hydrogen. This will have to be combined with batteries and other forms of storage, as well as a role for bioenergy and carbon capture in the medium run. The optimists believe that, thanks to the collapse in cost of renewable energy, this transition is now both feasible and cheap. They also expect the cost of renewable energy to continue falling, as it has done over the last decade. A few sectors, such as iron and steel, will be expensive to transform, but they are not large enough to change the big picture. In brief, say the optimists, the physics of the energy transition is theoretically possible. The difficulties, they think, are the shortage of time and the political will and agreement. However, the renewal of the world's entire infrastructure is a long-term project and it is not clear how this bill will be paid 
and who is going to pay it, and not least how it could possibly be done by 2030 in order to bring around net zero by 2050. It seems certain that no one is prepared to reduce their standards of living, constrain their consumption, that is, to suffer, to accomplish this. What also is certain is that the longer we delay, the greater the cost. Starting sooner rather than later is by far the cheaper option. However, the global economic and political system, capable of so many transformations thus far, seems incapable of rising to the challenge. So, since we have been exploring the concept of evil in recent episodes, the question can be put, is the contemporary attack on nature an example of evil? After all, if we are now proceeding with business as usual, in full knowledge of the consequences of what we are doing, and if this is destructive of life and the good, then is not that evil? Just as St. Augustine, in the 4th and 5th century AD, used the term original sin to cover a state of sinfulness originating with Adam and Eve and transmitted to the whole human race through concupiscence, sexual desire, and sexual intercourse. Perhaps we might have a new term, such as terminal sin, to refer to the state of desire, addiction, consumption, and exploitation of the Earth's resources that has spread practically to the entire human race through the globalisation of business civilization. Perhaps we should change the Genesis myth in the Bible from a story of Adam and Eve's expulsion from the Garden of Eden into the world to one in which they stay in the Garden of Eden, which is the world, and trash it. At any rate, with these ingredients of human evil and the devastating impacts of the multidimensional crises, not least of which is the ecological, then we are truly in apocalyptical times. Except that now we have no gods or devils as dramatis personae in this extraordinary drama. And although we have only ourselves, the human psyche contains the full spectrum of the demonic and the divine. The attack upon nature needs to be understood as principally a result of the economic system of business civilization. This is its central driver. It cannot be understood simply as the result of individual psychology or human nature. It is a whole system of investment, production, energy use, consumption, waste, pollution, profit and reinvestment on a gigantic scale that is driving it. It is business civilization, which is a varied combination of state and free markets stretching across the globe in considerable variety. It is a dynamic and changing global system capable of creating great wealth, lifting huge nations like China out of poverty, but also capable of great inequality. It is also extremely destructive upon nature and other life systems beyond our own. Unsurprisingly, in the light of the philosophy and metaphysics outlined previously, business civilization, humankind's most potent economic achievement, is a stunning example and 
an embodiment of creation and destruction.